And we welcome you to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I am very, very happy to be sitting opposite uh, Dr. Carol Sabar, who is Director of Library and Instructional Technology Services at Carthage College. She has been there for quite some time. In fact, Carol, how long has it been that you have worked at Carthage, which also is your alma mater? That's right. Um, so, well, first of all, pleasure to be here, Greg. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, this year, September the 1st, will be 40 years since I have uh, started <laughs> set foot as an employee at Carthage. And then, of course, I was a Carthage student from 79 until 82, spent a year um, doing some graduate work in France um, in between. So um, that was a, a good segue in between. But um, yes, I've been at Carthage for almost 40 years now. Wow. So you have me beat by a few years, but a you few. and I are two people who have quite quite a considerable institutional memory, as they say. I'm uh, always happy to have you on the morning show and certainly pleased about this opportunity to have you come on to, uh, in effect, respond to what occurred on the morning show yesterday, which was uh, when I aired the interview I recently recorded with technology reporter Thomas Vartinian talking about his book, The Unhackable Internet, How Rebuilding Cyberspace Can Create Real Security and Prevent Financial Collapse. In the book, Thomas Vartanian essentially is talking about uh, the world in which we live and the internet with which we live and in which we uh, work and play. And, of course, the fact that the Internet has grown up to be a, a largely unfettered space and too unfettered in the opinion of, of Thomas Vertanian. And, of course, one of the consequences of that is when we see these increasingly uh, serious uh, cyber attacks on all kinds of different entities, including schools and companies and uh, the Metropolitan Opera and uh, banks and so on. And uh, so in his book, The Unhackable Internet, Thomas Vartanian, in a sense, calls for a tightening up of the Internet to whatever extent that might even be possible uh, so that we can, in a sense, uh, function, work more safely uh, on the Internet in, in, in that space. So anyway, I knew that uh, Carol Sabar was someone who has... Uh, plenty of experience in terms of wrestling with some of the questions that are raised uh, in this book. And uh, I also think, uh, Carol, you have a exceptional gift for talking about complicated matters in a way that ordinary people can understand and, and, and relate to. So there are a lot of reasons why I think you are a, a, a great person to have on to continue the intriguing conversation begun yesterday on the, on the program. So in your busy schedule, I appreciate you making time for this conversation, and welcome back again to The Morning Show. Well, thank you. So uh, at the outset, I thought it would be interesting for us to talk about one of the first things you said to me today off the air, which is that, in a sense, by nature, you tend to be anti-alarmist. And I'm not sure if you meant more for yourself, you tend not to be you know, unduly alarmed by things. You tend to react to uh, threats or situations calmly. Or maybe it's more that you really believe that we need to not be alarmist kind of in our public discourse and that there are more helpful ways to kind of talk about things and more helpful ways to engage with problems. So let's talk about that matter of being anti-alarmist, what, what you mean, how that applies to you, and how that applies to this conversation and topic. 
First of all, I think that no one does their best thinking when they're in a heightened um, feeling of fear, right? So anybody that's really worried at the time, it's really hard to make good decisions and take appropriate action for things if you're afraid. Hmm. And so I really don't like it when um, things lead with fear. So in fact, one of the tests these days for scams, for example, is, is the scam trying to um, tempt you to be, you know, get rich quick? Or is the scam trying to scare you? Mm. Because a lot of times, and uh, we talked about this for a few seconds, the, the kinds of things that will happen, I actually read an article in the Reader's Digest, this has happened to us at home, and I'm going to use phone scams as actually bother me a lot more than the internet ones do, where someone calls you up and says, you know, you figured your taxes wrong. The police are going to come and, you know, beat down your door in the next half an hour if you don't pay this tax right now. Well, okay. So first of all, say to yourself, this person is trying to scare me, right? So if they weren't trying to scare me, what would they actually be saying? And then start looking at that at mm. face value instead. So the more you get into it, the more you realize that we'll... The IRS never calls you on the phone, ever. Mm-hmm. We've actually gotten one of their letters of, you figured your taxes wrong, which wasn't actually true, <laughs> but but it, it, it's always a letter and so forth. So and, and they don't try to scare you, right? They will send you something and say, you figured this wrong, but here's what you need to do. And if you want to pay, do this. But if you don't think you actually owe this money, here's what you need to do. So usually the best, most helpful information is given in a more matter-of-fact way, Mm. not an alarmist way. I remember hearing you one time say, maybe this was a Facebook post, okay, so the top story of the evening is, you know, snow in Wisconsin. How is this a big (laughs) story, right? So the same thing. I mean, even the Weather Channel tries to make you feel like the world is going to end so that you'll click on those stories and read the stories and go, oh, my God, right? Mm. So anything that makes you say, oh, my God, this is terrible, you need to back up and say, "Okay, let me just find the information in here. Try to pull out my feelings. So I like to I mean, part of my job, I think, forever has been um, people saying, oh, my gosh, this thing just popped up on my computer. Uh Right. What do I do now? Well, first of all, take a deep breath and calm down and tell me what it is, because you won't make a good decision if you're just reacting in fear. Usually it's like close it, just (laughs) close it, reboot. You know, it'll be fine. Don't worry. Hmm. So. So the the question comes up of of uh, things about which we justifiably should be concerned or worried. uh, But in a sense, how worried should we be? Uh, and of course, I think that really is, in a sense, central to this really interesting book by Mr. Vartanian, The Unhackable Internet, where, among other things, um, he is talking about these the increasing preponderance and the severity of cyber attacks, which we, we read about. And of course, that's nothing being fabricated that is really happening. And obviously, to some extent, we need to be really concerned. Uh, so... What is your advice for us as we start thinking about things like cyber attacks that could potentially target our bank or target where we work or target maybe even something at home? Um, How worried should we be or in what way should we be worried about that? 
Right. I haven't heard of too many scenarios where all of a sudden um, a person's money was just gone or the bank was just gone, right? I mean, going back to the date the Great Depression, you know, they put in the FDIC and so forth. So as long as your money is in a bank somewhere that's um, insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance, whatever it is, um, your money should be safer in the bank than it would be somewhere else. Under your mattress. Under your mattress, exactly. What you do need to be careful of, obviously, from a personal standpoint, is that A, you don't fall for things where it's your own action that is causing the risk, right? So Mm -hmm. there's a cartoon that I absolutely love. So we're obviously on radio, so I'm going to have to describe it to you. Mm -hmm. But it shows this boxing ring. And the announcer is saying, in this corner, we have firewalls, we have encryption, we have, you know, antivirus, we have this and this and this. And in this corner, we have Dave. And (laughs) and the idea being that no matter how secure you could make the internet or how secure you could make your computer or how secure you can make your Wi-Fi at home, you're probably the weak link in the Mm -hmm. whole thing, right? So if when you get an email, it says, oh, we're about to discontinue your Yahoo Mail because you need to verify. So click on this link and verify. And you click on the link and you log in, in air quotes, to your Yahoo Mail on that website. Well, it's entirely possible. In fact, it's probably about a 95% chance, maybe more like a 100% chance, that the site that you just logged into was not actually Yahoo Mail, has nothing to do with your Yahoo Mail, and it was actually set up by hackers, and now they have your login and password. Mm. So... Okay, who cares, you know, if somebody gets into my email, they can read all the spam from the New York Times, they can, you know, do all this kind of stuff. Well, no, but the important thing is, is that now, if they see, for example, that your Amazon notifications all come to your Yahoo mail, now they go out to Amazon, they try to log in as you, but they hopefully your password's different and, and you don't have the same password that you just typed in, and now they say... Um, now now they say, oh, I've forgotten my password, which sends a password reset to your Yahoo Mail, which they now have. Now, granted, I'm sounding kind of alarmist right here. But what I'm saying is, is that there are things that you do need to worry about. But in the same way that you need to know that, for example, the purse that I brought with me has a zipper, because if you travel somewhere overseas, it's better to have a purse that zips closed than one that's open because you're less likely to be pickpocketed, right? Mm. So the same kinds of care that you would use to stay healthy or to stay safe when traveling are the same kinds of care that you use when you're on the internet. And so as long as you're doing those things, anything else that's beyond your control, you may have to deal with it at some point. But you're probably more likely to have your wallet stolen out of a locker room at a gym that you're in than you are have your identity stolen online. Way more likely if, for example, you decide, well, I'm going to call and book a hotel room while I'm sitting at the airport over my cell phone and I read them my credit card numbers out loud Mm. in the middle of the airport, (laughs) right? That's way more dangerous than putting it into a website Um, because those 
you know, the Hiltons of the world have made it so that your credit card information should be safe as it's going over the internet. So again, there's a reasonable amount of caution that everyone should take to not give out information unless they're absolutely sure. Um, and usually, for example, banks will send periodically, maybe every six months or so, a, we will never ask you for this mm. online. We will never ask you for that. We will never send you a message that looks like this. And so when you see those really odd things, train yourself to know what looks odd and what doesn't look odd, what looks normal, what doesn't look normal. That reminds me of, of a number of, of emails that you have sent to the Carthage community over the years when some kind of a scam will, will, will be coming to many, many Carthage faculty, staff, or students. And, uh, and in many cases, it, it purports to be something from you, not, not specifically you by name, but it, it, it is pretending to be the Carthage Technology Center or whatever and asking for certain information that in fact should not be given. And I remember you trying to explain, we will never send an email that looks like this. And you also, I remember giving, giving advice on how we can determine where this email is, is really coming from and if in fact it's coming from Carthage. Right. And what we usually will tell people in those same emails is we don't have the time and it's a bad habit, right, to send out an, a warning every single time for every single threat that happens. We do have a place on our Carthage website where we post those so people could look mm. them up. But if you as a user at Carthage got used to us always sending out a warning every time, then the one time when you see the threat before we see the threat and we don't send out the warning, you're like, well, it must be safe because yeah. they didn't warn me about it. Mm. So what we're trying to do is the whole, you know, teach people to fish right. kind of thing where it's way better to learn how to identify those yourself than to rely on someone saying, is this safe? Is this not safe? That said, if you have a trusted entity, it could be the IT people that you work with. It could be if you're an older person. In some cases, my mom will send me this. You know, I got this in my email. What should I do with it? Well, mom, you should just ignore it, right? It's not something that's real. Or if it is, here's what you should do. Or maybe you should call the company and find out whether they recently sent out some kind of um, communication about that. So if you have a trusted entity, you can always ask them, what do you think about this? Does this look real to you? In an effort to train yourself. Very good. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking today on The Morning Show with Dr. Carol Sabar, who is Director of Library and Instructional Technology Services at Carthage College. And I asked uh, Dr. Sabar to come on the program today uh, to respond uh, to the conversation or maybe continue the conversation begun yesterday with the interview I recorded with Thomas Vartanian, the author of a book called The Unhackable Internet, How Rebuilding Cyberspace Can Create Real Security and Prevent Financial uh, Collapse. I would really love to hear your response to one of kind of the central concepts of Mr. Vartanian's book, which is essentially that the internet has grown up very, very rapidly and without 
very much at all in the way of regulations and constraints and so on. And I don't remember if it's him in the book or if I characterized it as this, but it, you know, it's almost kind of a Wild West scenario in which you know, there's essentially no police and, and in many, many cases uh, one can operate with complete anonymity uh, over the Internet, not, not in every single case, but in many, many cases. And, and it really is Mr. Vartanian's contention that we, we have ended up with an Internet that has all of this freedom, but that freedom comes at a, at a really high cost uh, in, 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 in his mind. And, and he wishes for and calls for us to, in a sense, reshape the Internet to whatever extent we can into something that is not quite so free, uh, acknowledging that there is something lost in that, but, but a lot is gained. And in his mind, what we gain is well worth uh, a more regulated Internet. I'm just curious what your response was to, is to that, that kind of concern about sort of the, the Internet that we have. I mean, do you have the same problem with the sort of the nature of our Internet? And do you also feel like even if you share that concern, do you feel like there is something we can do or should do about that? It was an interesting, um, some of his um, thoughts and some of his suggestions are very, very interesting. I I did look at um, some of his book and he talks about um, creating a global regulation body that is part government, part private sector to to take a look at this. Fantastic idea. I would, I would love that. I've, People who know me know that oftentimes I say, if you put enough smart people in a room, it's really hard to make a bad decision. <laughs> so if that were really, really doable, then that would be a great place to start. Um, I would characterize that as a Herculean task because mm. we're at what we're at right now. And there isn't certainly much that the average person could do about it. Um, we could try to advocate for that kind of thing to be done. But at this point, if I were going to advocate for things, it probably would be something more like rural datafication to get the Internet out to more people that have a hard time getting to the mm. Internet. We saw that at Carthage when kids went home for COVID. There were some that lived in rural areas or other areas or didn't have the funding to have um internet at home. So that was difficult then. All of a sudden, people didn't have internet. But that's sort of the flip side, right? Mm. But that would be something that I personally would advocate for long before I would advocate for sort of this parallel internet that he's talking about. Really an interesting idea to have something that would be parallel for financial transactions, um, government transactions, anything that should stay secure and confidential. What the average person does at home on any given day, shopping on Amazon or looking up what they have at the Kenosha Public Library or doing Facebook or whatever their activities are, wouldn't really qualify for that secure lane of the internet mm. anyway. But he mentioned, and I, I was really interested in this um, because I didn't have access to anything even remotely related to technology in the 60s and 70s, that there were these parallel secure networks. 
Well, certainly at some point, people would, for example, if they had to access a bank, might have a secure terminal somewhere. Mm. Like if you had branches of a bank, right, the only way to get to the main office was through a secure terminal at the branch. And that was literally its own phone line, its own everything, didn't go over the internet, Mm. and so on. The idea of having the secure lanes to the internet and having people use them has me asking myself, how would that work? Because the box that we all have at home, right, that's the internet modem that connects us to the internet, connects us to the internet. Mm. And we've got one IP number. And I believe his suggestion was that then, for example, if you went to do your banking, you would get to a portal somehow and have to authenticate at that portal to be able to get to that financial information. Yeah, that's a really good idea. But still, your last mile is the official word for it. Um, Your connection between your computer and that portal, that gateway, that login place to get to the secure part of the Internet still goes over the Internet. The free Internet. The free Internet. So you'd still have that last mile being potentially less safe. And at the point where you're typing in your password to the bank, it's going over the internet on that less safe part until it hits the portal to get to the more safe part. Right. So unless everybody had a second box at home that was to get to the secure internet, I'm not really sure how that would work, but I'm sure he's figured it out and done the science. That isn't my argument. But I also think that it's a trade-off that, for example, um, your cell phone is essentially a low jack. It's a tracking device. Mm. It always knows where you are. Even if you turn off the GPS, it's still going to use the cell towers to triangulate where you are. And that's important because if you call 911 from your cell phone, it needs to be able to figure out where you are in order to send the police, the fire trucks, the ambulance, whatever. Also, it needs to know who you are if you're going to use something like Google Maps to get yourself unlost when you don't know where you are or figure out the directions between yourself and the place that you're going. So there are trade-offs, exactly what he said, between the privacy piece or the security piece and the convenience piece. And the average person wouldn't give up their Google Maps. I wouldn't give up my Google Maps for a more secure internet. I would just try to not do the things that, um, if it were really that dangerous, I would just try not to do those things on the internet. Now, do I use internet banking? Absolutely, it's awesome. Plus banking hours are shorter now than they used Mm. to be for that reason, because so many people are using it. So it is a trade-off. And um, while I think that no one would be against a more secure internet, I think that the average person probably would say, yeah, but don't slow me down. Don't make it more difficult. Don't make it impossible for me to use the things I need to use. Right. One of the... uh points he makes in talking about kind of the internet that we have is this is this matter of being able to be anonymous or relatively anonymous in in many many sectors and and that's something he has a a, a big problem with and i think a fair number of people uh kind of lament that that fact uh do you see any potential problems if we start restricting that 
capacity to operate anonymously? Uh, Are there any causes for concern when we start tilting in that direction? I wouldn't see that necessarily as an issue. I personally pretty much ignore anything that's posted on the internet by someone who doesn't provide their name and identity. Even the kinds of, let's say you have a YouTube video, right? And so below the YouTube video, people can comment on that. I think that's the example you used um, in yesterday's broadcast. Technically, no, they're not anonymous, right? Somebody has signed up for a YouTube account and is responding as that YouTube account. Now, that YouTube account may have nothing to do with who their actual identity is. It may be a bot. It may be a real person just trying to promote their agenda. And there are sad stories of things that had to be taken down or times where YouTube had to disallow comments. So I remember there being, maybe it wasn't YouTube, but something else. There was a story online about when um, former President Obama's oldest daughter had gotten into college. And the comments were so inappropriate that at some point they just had to take the ability to comment away from people. Mm. So there are times where, yes, the internet police that sort of exist but sort of don't exist. Each site has to rely on their own um, folks to do that. It would be great if that could get cracked down on. But again, this is a little bit of, who was it, Niebuhr, I think, that had originally said, you know, first they came for the trade unionists and I said Mm. nothing, (laughs) then they came for the communists and I said nothing, then they came for the Jews and I said nothing, and then finally they came for me. So while... Most of us can look at something and go, yeah, that's bad. Um, What we don't want to happen, I think, and he uses um, China as an example of segmentation. When our students or faculty go to China, we have to actually show them in advance how to forward their Google Mail, which, you know, at Carthage, we use Gmail and Google Mail, to another email address because China does not allow Google. At all? At all. Wow. And so uh, at least they didn't a few years ago. I don't know if that's changed at all, if it's if it's moved up. But they have their own search engine. I don't remember the name of it right now. I think it starts with a W. But it. I don't think that anyone would really want for our government, for example, to be deciding what gets filtered and what doesn't get filtered. I would personally be happy. We've talked about phone scams a little bit. If they could eliminate um, calls for political reasons and requests for donations over the phone, no matter how many times I put myself on the do not call list, yes, I don't get, you know, would you like to buy something from Kohl's over the phone, but I still get all kinds of things from politicians. Now, at some point, maybe I ought to just kill my home phone. On my iPhone, I can turn off unrecognized phone numbers, and so I don't get those things. But while we say, yes, I can see that this is bad, I don't think any of us really want to offload that responsibility onto a government entity per se, or some other type of um, sensor of some variety. Being a librarian now by trade, right? Um, librarians are typically very, very anti-censorship, and I guess I would fall into that. You know, let let people learn how to decide themselves where to go 
what to read. Um, it's the whole banned books phenomenon, right? Mm. If you take a look at what the banned books were. So who knows what would be the banned sites on the Internet? And um, yes, there are some things that just, you know, child pornography, it's, it's against the law. So anything that's against an existing law should not be able to come to you over the Internet. But um, in the case of China, I think that they filter it more because they know what they want their people to see, not so much that they, they're worried about who the content providers are. Hmm. We're speaking with Dr. Carol Sabar, Director of Library and Instructional Technology Services at Carthage College. Our conversation today is uh, in response to and a continuation of the conversation yesterday, the uh, interview I recorded with Thomas Vartanian, author of The Unhackable Internet. One of the things, Carol, that we... Uh, talked about in terms of some real-life examples was uh, what I do and my colleagues do when uh, we want to uh, sign in to uh, read our me- email at, at, at Carthage. And actually, I have to do that also here at Gateway with my WGTD Gateway uh, email account. We have to do this thing called one login, not every single time, but from time to time. And this was something added into the mix not terribly long ago. And uh, uh, for anybody listening who is not acquainted with it, it involves you know trying to get in, but then a code gets sent to your cell phone, and you have to type in that code. And I suppose it's one way to sort of uh, doubly authenticate that it is really me trying to get into my own email. Uh, did you have anything to do with the instigation of that? Yes, and absolutely. And can you tell us any more about... Uh, you know the, the the kind of discussions that go on that would lead uh, you know, a place like Carthage or Gateway or, or whatever uh, to 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 implement something like that. Yes. So there have been on these cyber attacks, um, and this is no joke, right? Cyber attacks against not only banks and so forth, but some colleges have fallen victim as well to cyber attacks, ransomware, things like that. And I don't know who it was where, but there have actually been, there's been at least one, maybe two or three colleges that haven't been able to come back from it. If you're already in a tenuous financial position and you're already hurting in terms of student body and all of a sudden you can't teach your classes because so much is online and you can't send out your grades and you can't collect your bills and you can't do all of those things, um, that is really hard to come back from. That's a catastrophe. I mean, It's a catastrophe. I yeah. mean, it's it's not dissimilar to there were colleges that didn't come back from Hurricane Katrina mm, that had right. to close their doors, right? So, so one of the things that happens is that pretty much all colleges and probably most institutions everywhere hold insurance policies for cyber insurance. And cyber insurance companies are looking at the same way that your homeowners would say, hey, do you have this? Do you have locks on your doors? Do you have this? You know, your car insurance will say, do you have, you know, auto seat belts? Do you have this? Do you have that? Do you have a backup camera? We give you discounts for this. So cyber insurance for institutions will say, if you don't do X, Y, Z, we may not renew your policy. Mm. And so you're either stuck, as you might be with car insurance, getting a much more expensive policy from someone else, or, God help you, going uninsured completely. Mm. So over the last five years or so, cyber insurances for institutions have really been cracking down 
with, we need for your data to be encrypted when, if it lives in the cloud, or even if it lives on campus, we still need it to be encrypted. We need for your users to be doing two-factor authentication, which is what you were talking about with one login. Um, I also have a presence at UW-Milwaukee. Theirs actually expires every 12 hours for web-based applications. So, yikes. So That's, every 12 hours every you 12 have to hours, do that Every 12 hours I again. have to go do the thing on my phone. Hmm. Um, so conventional wisdom with authentication is it should be a combination of something you know, for example, a password, something you have, which could be your cell phone, or something you are, which is what comes into biometric, like um, thumbprints or retinal scans mm. or that kind of thing, face recognition. So actually, a lot of those things you can set up on your phone to do the face recognition from your phone. So it's sort of, you know, adds to the convenience really more than the security because you could also type in the code on your phone to get that to work. So that is a lot of actually, it's not just colleges going, whoo, let's make this less convenient and more secure. <laughs> I think this is a grand idea because they're also relatively expensive systems like that to implement besides the user irritation. But it it's important, right, to be able to make sure that the people who are logging in really are the people that they are. Hmm. You know, I had not really seriously stopped to think about the possibility that a place like Carthage College could be the target of a of a cyber attack. And I suppose anything is possible, in, in, including that. And is this, but it sounds like this isn't necessarily another line of defense for that so much. It's just to, in general, make our system more secure for its users. And that's something that cyber insurers want us to do. Well, and I had heard stories before, too. Now, this people at Carthage actually got this email. But fortunately, the folks that we had on staff back then, and this was, I don't know, umpteen you know staff members ago, was savvy enough not to respond to it, but it was one of those emails that purported to come from the president of the college to the CFO of the college saying, could you, I need for a wire transfer to be done from Carthage to this bank account somewhere. Well, it's easy to make an email look like it's from the president of the college, especially if you're on a phone or something, and say, do this. So part of that is you need to be savvy enough. There, like I said, there were actually a few colleges that sent the $10,000 or $20,000 or whatever it was to this offshore account, God knows where. So things like that should keep people from actually hacking into the president's account and sending a message to the CFO. It doesn't necessarily keep the CFO, the chief financial officer, <clears throat> from not recognizing something that spoofs the president's account that isn't really, right? So no matter what you do, again, Dave is in this corner, right, being mm -hmm. the weak link to all of these different things that we do. So as much as we try, for example, we also have a system called Proofpoint that if you email yourself a document, you might say, why isn't this coming through? It'll probably take five minutes to get there because it's going through an extra system that looks at the attachment and says, is there anything in this attachment that might be dangerous? Mm. Is it maybe a scam? Is it maybe a virus? Is it malware? Is it something else? 
And um, only once, you know, it's gotten a clean bill of health from Proofpoint will it actually come through. So all of that slows down things a little bit, maybe makes things get stuck that need to go through that are actually okay, but better to err on the side of safety than something else. So you put all of these different systems in place to try to stay safer as much as you can. Again, then you try to educate your users so that they won't be the weak link to the right. whole thing. So they won't be Dave. <laughs> they won't be Dave, exactly. <laughs> uh, one of the things uh, Mr. Vartanian talked about uh, in, in the interview and in, and in his book is that in, in some respects, these kind of threats that we are talking about are a moving, evolving target. That is, uh, as the technology changes in our phones, in our laptops, in our everything, uh, so the tools by which uh, people doing bad things uh, can do those bad things, that, that also evolves and changes and in many respects becomes more sophisticated. And so I should think that for you and your staff, one of the really supremely tricky challenges is uh, to remain as current as possible. What are the means by which you and others uh, in, engaged in this this kind of work on behalf of a place like Carthage or Gateway or whatever? Uh, what are the tools at your disposal uh, in order to remain current and to continue to make the wisest choices on behalf of the, of, of the entities you're working for? There probably is no substitute for reading. Mm -hmm. So we would get... Um, either trade rags, right, trade magazines and so forth. Um, I'm a bigger fan of always asking other folks that I trust um, what they do. I don't know that that keeps you cutting edge the, as much, but it certainly keeps you more current, right? So mm -hmm. they always say you, you can be on the leading edge, you don't want to be on the bleeding edge. So you don't <laughs> want to do things that are way ahead of everybody else because um, he did mention that the current um, the current way to, do, to uh, deploy software was to deploy first. I actually think he might have used a different word, implement maybe or something. Deploy first and patch second, right? So right. Um, get your software out there and then you can fix the vulnerabilities in the software. Um, I, I'm always lamenting lazy programmers, right? So people who, for example, if you've ever had on a website and you've got this blue button that you can click on, right? But mm -hmm. if you click somewhere in the blue button that's not right on the words, it doesn't actually work. Well, that's like a literally a 10 second extra piece of code to mm -hmm. add to it. So if people aren't even making the button clickable in its entire form, then they're probably not thinking a whole lot about the cybersecurity of the application in the background. So I, I'm totally with him on that one. And uh, just to be clear, what Mr. Vartanian is saying, that it is a mistake to put new software out there where you haven't already thought about these matters of, of security versus vulnerability. And, and he's lamenting, as you are, the fact that a lot of things get put out there without proper care. Exactly. And then after the fact, they try to patch up the vulnerability that exists. So. And that's usually what happens. So, for example, when a newer version of Windows comes out, um, you know, when Windows, let's see, what was it? I don't remember all, all of the things, but there would be a new version that looked really new and slick and shiny and supposedly had new features that the average person is like, don't do this to me. <laughs> um, but it would usually be less secure. And then they'd come out with the next version, which would be not really any more features, but would be more secure. 
So those kinds of things happen all the time. We're pushing out this new exciting feature, but you might not want to use the feature right away until they've spent a little bit of time cleaning up the glitches and cleaning mm. up the security aspects of it. So I like that leading edge versus a bleeding edge. <laughs> and yeah, trying to figure out, uh, let other people kind of sort things out thing a little bit first, and then uh, maybe that's the time to to, uh, to, to climb aboard. This is probably way too sensitive a question to even ask, but in your long t- time at Carthage, has Carthage ever experienced what we would call a cyber attack? Um, a long time ago, before, we, before the library was built, so it would have been in maybe about 2000, we actually did have someone hack into the college's web server, which was just one machine that sat there at the mm-hmm. time. And so there's a, I don't know if it's a government entity or whether it's just an NGO that's called CERT that can help institutions and people and so forth with um, cyber events. And so back then we contacted CERT and they helped us figure out where the thing came from and how we could recover from it and so on and so on. Again, that was a long time ago and it was just the college's website. And if someone can break into something like a web server, they could hope to find maybe private information, logins or passwords or credit card information, Mm -hmm. whatever coming through the web server. But either way, you don't want somebody on your server sort of listening and watching and seeing what people do. Absolutely not. Back to the kind of the education piece, which I I think you're right. A a lot of this is really about that. I'm curious uh, how concerned you generally are uh, about students. I mean, I think most of the interactions that you and I have had, what I have really thought about more than anything is making sure the faculty and staff are functioning, are we are doing our work wisely and uh, and and conducting our business on the internet wisely. And and I think some of us kind of make the blithe assumption that the typical college student of of typical age between 18 and 22 uh, are so well steeped in this world of the internet that that they are not as apt to to fall prey to things or so on. And that's probably a big mistake to make that kind of assumption. I wonder how much you and your staff kind of think about making sure that students are wise users of the internet. We would try to educate them in the same way that we educate faculty and staff in terms of not falling prey to scams and things like that. I think that in probably the advising area, they may be talking to them about things like what it might be appropriate to post and what might not be appropriate Mm. to post online, for example, how to interact online, um, staying safe in a lot of different ways. I would say, yeah, it's probably the opposite. Um, Students haven't been around the block as many times as some of us to know what kinds of things are out there in the world. Ultimately, the people who are more trusting, whether that's younger people or older people, are more likely to fall prey to some of these things. They can't imagine that anyone in the world would do something that bad. And so, you know, so what... You know, shouldn't this be safe? If Why would they ask me for my password if they didn't really need my password for something? Well, no, there's a lot of reasons why they could ask you for your password, most of them really terrible. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I wish we could really 
connect with students a little more often. We do try to warn people things, something that did happen to one of the students um, that we found out about was an email they had gotten that somebody was looking for an an employee to do certain kinds of work for them and they would pay them this, but they'd need them to, I don't know, buy this equipment and then send it here and do this and then they'd get paid back. Well, no, they don't ever get paid back. And yeah, we had a couple of people that were like, is this really real? And then knew of one girl that had worked with her admissions rep because she had actually fallen for it and Mm. had lost money. And one girl would have, except her bank caught it. Mm -hmm. But the other one, the bank didn't catch it. And of course, the mom was like, you know, I'm I'm mad at the bank because they didn't catch it. Right. No, that would have been good, too. But you really need to. That's one of my you know notes on, that I took was you really need to know how to identify scams and fake news and all kinds of things. Now we call it disinformation because we can use multi-syllable words these days. But um, <laughs> but all kinds of things that are just fake posts on the internet, things that aren't really real. Um, I'd love to get those things off the internet, but at this point, the best you can do is just not forward them along. A right. lot of what we do these days is the old equivalent of the old chain letter, mm. right? No, stop the chain letter. Don't do that. Nothing bad is going to happen to you if you don't forward this post, right? So just say no. Right. I wonder, you, you mentioned that uh, that this fall will mark 40 years 40 that years. you have worked at Carthage College, and I assume that whole time uh, in the library, which now is the Hedberg Library. Uh, is that where you began your work at Carthage? So I started off, if you I uh, know you weren't there, but uh, in about 1980, they built the computer center about down where Cindy Welch's office is in oh. Lentz Hall. So that was where we were for the longest time. So I started off um, being the operations manager, then the administrative programmer, and then became the director of the computer center. So only worked with IT. And then in about 1994, they merged the library and IT together. I was still only really involved with IT, but since my supervisor, you might remember Jean, at the time was the library director, I started learning some library vocabulary and how to talk about things like that, starting to think like a librarian. Um, And then I was asked to um, oversee the library, at least part of it initially and now all of it in about 2010. Wow. So it's been a moving target. Sure. And it's just kind of wild to think about how much the world has changed over the course of that 40 years. I we mean. had dumb terminals, right, when it first started. So talk about lack of, of you know, uh, threat of any kind. You were connected by a specific wire back to, you know, the mainframe in the, in the back room. So um, and we didn't get on the internet at Carthage, probably pretty close to about the same time as most pe- most schools, but uh, mid-90s is when the World Wide Web came out. And so that was when um, we got on the internet and started doing an online catalog for the library instead of the old card catalog and many, many systems like that, email. Hmm. And the rest is history, mm-hmm. <laughs> history that continues to evolve. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, 
offer your thoughts on a lot of these different uh, issues and concerns raised by Thomas Vartanian in his book, again called The The Unhackable Internet. But I think we've managed to uh, continue the conversation into some really, really interesting uh, directions. And uh, I really appreciate you making time for this conversation today. And I look forward to uh, when we can have you back. And in the meantime, happy anniversary on 40 years at Carthage. I'm glad you're there. Thanks. (laughs) Dr. Carol Sabar, Director of Library and Instructional Technology Services at Carthage College.